Romans chapter 8, if you have your paper Bibles or your non-paper Bibles. Anybody sick of Romans 8 yet? That's right. That's right. That's the right answer. That's good because we got quite a bit more to go in Romans 8, including today. And before we start today, I want to confess that this, though it will probably run the length of what we normally run, is still only a partial message. Um, We're going to be looking at 828. And for some of y'all, that rings a bell, like 828, it's, it's that verse. Some of you are like, I don't know, I don't know what you're talking about. Good, we'll, we'll talk about it today. So we're only looking at one verse this morning. One massive, powerful verse, but one verse none the same. And something I want to say up front, that, that this verse is great, but it's part of a bigger context. And we have to take that context into account if we're going to see the full scope of this verse. Remember that a text without a context is a pretext, which means it really has no meaning in and of itself without its context. We'll talk about that in a second. So what I want to do real quick before we get into Romans 8.28, I want to talk about the the immediate context, the immediate before and the immediate after. The immediate previous context starts in verse uh, verse 18, where Paul refers to our suffering and our desire for our final adoption, which is the, the redemption of our bodies, As you go down through that passage, he talks of groaning and waiting and God helping us with hope and with the intercession of the Holy Spirit and groaning is too deep for words. It's a passage that tells us the truth of how hard our lives can be without any glossing it over. Then we got verse 28, but the context immediately after verse 28 speaks of God's sovereign plan to bring us to glory. And we'll look at that next week and maybe few weeks after that but we have to keep it in mind as we look into verse 28 today so we've got suffering groaning awaiting adoption holy spirit interceding for us verse 28 and then god's sovereign plan to bring us to glory so keep that in mind a text without a context is a pretext take that in don't be a single verse christian don't settle for Scripture McNuggets. We got a whole buffet, guys, and it is spread before us. Take it in. Browse it. Look around. Look at what all is in this book. It is fantastic. So with that in mind, let's look at our passage today in that context. We'll actually be reading verses 26 through 30. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to read 26 through 30. And I goofed up and only put 28 through 30 up here, but we're going to read 26 through 30. So if you would, please stand for the reading of the Bible. Starting in verse 26 of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom He predestined, He also called And those whom he called, he also justified. 
and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. God, what shall we say to these things? Our words fail, but your spirit has the ability, God, to bring this home to our hearts and literally change our lives as a result. For those of us who are here this morning, God, who know you, who have been called according to your purpose, who love you, this really may be the best news in the world. Help us to understand that. And for those who sit here this morning who may be outside of Christ, God, I pray that they would be given a hunger and a desire for the truth that is contained herein, that you would effectually call them into your kingdom as they hear the gospel, the truth of your life, your death, your burial, your resurrection, Jesus, and your ascension into heaven where you now intercede for us so that all things work together for our good. Help us to see it and know it. Help us to live it by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you. I'm going to read 828 again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, before we get into all of this and what it all means, I want, you just, I want you to look at that verse. I want you to breathe it in. I want you to read it, and I want you to think about it for just a minute. And I want you to think about the ramifications of this. We spoke at the beginning of our study in Romans about this being like climbing Mount Everest. that This is the highest peak of the Bible and it's going to be like a trek up Mount Everest. I really believe this verse is the rarefied air at the top of the Everest of Romans. And I want you to feel the scope, the breadth, the wonder of this truth. I, again, I think it's a summit, a peak, probably the peak of this greatest of letters. And I want you to ask a question as we seek to explore it. It's a real simple question. What if it's true? Really? What if this is true? Now I know as good little Christians we would say, yeah, well, yeah, it's true because why? It's in the Bible. And living in a real world, we know that this, that, is objectively true. But what happens if this becomes true to us in our lives, in my home, at my work, in the hospital after the diagnosis, when the debt collectors are calling, when we're groaning because we don't know what to pray for as we ought. What if this is true? Really, truly, objectively, and subjectively true. 
What if? The implications, the ramifications are immense. Life-alteringly immense. Bigger than we can realize. But with the Spirit's help, let's try. And what we're going to do is we're just going to break this down into four clauses. I think it's four. Yeah, four clauses. Not Santa clauses. Satan clause. Or four clauses. Clauses are just groups of words together. So we've got four clauses that we're going to break this down into, just like it comes in the verse up here. The first one is, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Four ginormous clauses. And we're going to start with the first one, which is, and we know that. So let's look at it. Now again, context, we just came out of a section talking about groaning and suffering and not knowing how to pray as we ought, and God working through His Spirit and the Spirit's power to pray on our behalf to make sure that His will gets done in our lives. Then we get this, and... Notice that it's not but. Not for. Not but. Not however. But we get the word and here. Groaning. Suffering. Spirit interceding. Hope. Too deep for words. And. So what does and mean here? Things are hard. We suffer. We have the Spirit's help. And. So, things are bad and hard. God helps us in our weakness by the Spirit praying for us. And we're continuing a thought of how God helps us in the midst of our suffering and groaning. The Spirit helps us in our weakness praying for us. And, and what? And we know that. Who does what? And we. Who is we? Now, we're not going to go through this word by word like this through the whole thing, but who is we? We is those who are helped by the Spirit's praying for them, those who have hope. We is believers. That's bad grammar, but it's good news. We is believers. In this verse, we refers to believers and we. And we know. Now what does it mean to know something? And actually the Bible speaks of knowing at least two different ways. Let me give you a little breakdown of that. One way that the Bible speaks of knowing something is in a mental, intellectual way. To know something cognitively with your brain. That word in the Greek is oida, O-I-D-A. And in that context, it means to get knowledge of or to understand. Now, the other word for know is genosko, genosko, G-I-N-O-S-K-O. And it means to have an intimate knowledge of and actually can be used for sexual intercourse. Adam knew his wife and she conceived. So it's talking about intimate, personal Knowledge. So you've got cognitive knowledge and you've got intimate personal knowledge. Let me ask you, which one do you think this one is? It is actually intellectual. 
Now, why would I bring that up? Because next week, we're going to talk about foreknowledge. And it's a different word than intellectual, mental understanding. So I'm kind of setting the plate there. Here, today, we're talking about intellectual knowledge, but there is a knowledge that is more intimate, more personal. So tuck that away for next week. Always looking for what's next, right? So in this passage, this knowledge is an intellectual understanding. We know, we understand, we have a knowledge of, and we know that. That just sets the stage for what we're about to see that we know, which is the next clause. And we know that for those who love God. Now, this is tricky. I'd say if you ask most people, do you love God? Yeah, 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 I love God. But what does it really mean to love God? So we tie this with the first clause. In the midst of our suffering and help from God, we believers know what? Now this phrase, for those who love God, is a descriptor of the we in the previous clause. And we was believers. We is believers. We will be believers, trust me. So this phrase describes the we. So it's giving a description of a certain group of people. So whatever we know is for that specific group of people. And that would imply that it's not for everybody. It's for specific somebodies. And what is the descriptor? For those who love God. Now, I broke into the song up here and talked about it's not the same for the saint and for the sinner. And this kind of describes that. This tells us that there's a difference between those who love God and those who don't love God. The we's and the they's. Scripture breaks all of humanity down into two groups of people, those who are in Christ and those who are not. This passage that we're looking at today is for those who love God. And that's a specific group of people. So listen to me, and I don't want to sound mean or harsh, but this promise is not for unbelievers. It's not. It's not for everybody. It's for those who love God. You're saying, well, that's, that's, that's very heady, and that's, you sound arrogant and proud. No, no, no. I don't, we'll get to it in a minute. I don't love God because of something that I did. Scripture says, well, we'll get to that in a minute. Let me not get ahead of myself. So this promise, this, this passage, this huge mountaintop experience is not for unbelievers. So when we say that God causes all things to work together for good, that's not true of unbelievers. And that's sad. And that should move us to evangelism. That should move us to preach the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. I want everybody to have this. Newsflash, not everybody's going to have it. And that should break our hearts. So, what's the descriptor of these we's? We is those for those who love God. So one question in that is, who loves God? And the resulting question from that question is, what does it mean to love God? Let's start with the second question first. What does it mean to love God? There are multiple Greek words for love in the New Testament. And this one here is agapao. 
When the Bible references God loving people, it usually uses this word or its root word, which is agape. It means to welcome, to entertain, to be fond of, to love dearly, to be well pleased, to be contented with. So God's love toward his people, as we've looked at here before, is for him to be well pleased with them. Like he said when he was with Jesus at the baptism and on top of the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am what? Well pleased. But in our passage today, it's not speaking of God's love toward us, but rather our love toward God. So to love God, according to this word's definition, is to welcome Him, to entertain Him as a welcome guest is the thought, or a member of the household even, to be fond of Him, to love Him dearly, to be well pleased with Him, and to be contented with Him. Now one thing that jumps out to me here in this passage and in the definition of love is that the love is toward Him. Him. Not His gifts, not His blessings, not His intervention, but for those who love God. Him. And we know that for those who love God, for those who find their delight in the person of God, who love God dearly, who are well pleased with God, who are content with God. And let me ask you straight up, church, individually and corporately, are you content with God? Are you content literally if God's all you have? We saw some horrible things through the flood this year. The thousand-year flood is what they're calling it. It comes around once every thousand years. We saw people's houses washed down the road. Anybody see the video of the one house being washed down the road? It was on fire. Those people were saying, we lost what? Everything. What if you didn't lose everything when your house washed down the road on fire? Can you... Are you content with the person of God alone? Because that's what it means to love God. I'm content with God. That's a tough question. Are you well pleased with the person of God? Do you find your delight in God Himself? Because those are the people, the born-again people of our Abba Father who know what this verse is referring to. And what do they know? Next clause. And we know that for those who love God, here's the clause, all things work together for good. Hmm. To me, this is the peak of the peak. The highest point of the verse that is the highest point of the highest chapter and the highest letter written in the highest book ever. This phrase, this clause right here, all things work together for good. This is staggering. This really is a game and life changer. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Let's explore the clause itself and then we'll see some of the implications here and we'll see some more in the application section. The first word is huge. All. Three letters. Whole life implications. All. It takes me back to verse 1 of chapter 8 where we saw that there is now no condemnation. Now is all the time. It's always now. And no means zero, zip, nada. So as long as now is now, there's never any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here, all means all. Listen, nothing is left out. All things. And things is kind of a junk drawer word that encompasses every item, every aspect, every issue, every thought, every word, every molecule. And what do all things do? They work together. This was probably my favorite part of preparation, by the way. That phrase, work together, is one word in the Greek, work together. And the word in the Greek is synergeo. It's where we get our word synergy. What is synergy? Let me give you a definition of synergy and plug this definition into this mindset. Synergy is defined as the interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, substances, or other agents. In our context, it's things. It's a combination or interaction of two or more to produce a combined effect greater than the sum of their separate effects. Let me boil it down a little clearer, okay? It's the principle that if one person can make five baskets, two people working together can make 25. It's not just double the effort. Something happens in synergy that multiplies the effect. One person doing everything they can do makes five. Two people working together get a system, boom, they make 25 in the same amount of time. That's synergy. It's an amazing thing. Ever, anybody ever been part of a synergistic relationship at work, at home, in school, and you're just like, wow, that's phenomenal. Synergy. Anybody ever read The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? Dude's a Mormon, but man, that's a great book. Let me just say it. He talks about synergy being the peak of human existence, interdependence upon one another, and man, there's implications of that. But here, in our passage, all things, everything, all things are synergizing together, accomplishing more together than they would separate in our lives. A disproportionate jump in productivity due to the cooperation of more than one person or thing. So here in Romans 8.28... What is synergizing to produce something greater than we can understand? All things. One thing in and of itself God can use in your life. But what God is doing is causing a synergistic relationship between all things to create something so much greater in your life than that one single thing ever could. 
God's got the momentum, God's got the power to incorporate all things to bring about something greater than that one single thing that we might be praying for. God, we just want this one thing. And God's like, your eyes are too small. Widen them up a little bit. I'm going to cause everything to work together for your good. That one little thing you want? You want the lottery? You want $387 million? I got something better than that for you. Exponentially greater than that. And I'm going to use everything in your life, everything in creation, to synergistically bring about something so much exponentially greater than $387 million. Your dreams are too small, church. Your God is too small. We need bigger. We need better. And I'm not talking about in a charismatic way. You need to ask for two cars. That's not what I'm talking about. You need to ask for the jumbo jet, not just the jet, Creflo Dollar. I hate the prosperity gospel. It is far too small. Here in Romans 8.28, what is synergizing to produce something greater than we can understand? All things are working together. Now tuck that away. It's going to be real important in our application. And... It's meaningless without the rest of the clause. All things synergize or work together for what? For good. Now before we explore the for good thought, I want to read again in context. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now these clauses are piling up and really pointing us to something above what we in our feeble little minds can take in. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. So, if I'm reading this right, and if my brain is putting these words together in the right way, this is saying that we are to know that for the people who delight in God, who love Him, everything that happens, everything, period, is working in a synergistic way, everything in concert together for good. All things for good. Anything, everything, better together than separate for good. What if that's true? That implies that as the universe swirls around in the hand of God, under the control of God, everything that happens is happening in a way that is piling up in a very specific way for the good of those who love God, who is controlling it all. I wish I could say it a thousand different ways. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing what this is saying. So that means that my financial difficulties and my weight loss or gain and my receding hairline are better together than separate and they're bringing about good for me. Yes, my family and my job and my schoolwork and my diet and my wardrobe and my car and my lawnmower and my books are in some sort of union to make something good for me? Yes. You mean the flood and the cancer and the sin and the blocked artery and the missed bill and the tragedy that takes my grandmother are working together for my good? Yes. Now note a couple of things very closely here. First, it does not say that we know for those who love God everything is good. It also does not say that we know for those who love God there is good in everything. 
No and no. We just came out of the section talking about suffering and groaning and not knowing the will of God. These things are not good. And this passage is not insinuating that they are. God's not making light of our suffering. He's not saying, oh, it's good for you, suck it up. No, He is seeing it for what it is, which is hard and bad. And He's not saying that we should look for the silver lining in every bad situation. Sometimes there just isn't one, guys. The bad that we are in is just bad. I talked to a person one time who had lost their son in a car wreck several years ago. And they said, I need to look for the good that came out of it. Trouble is, they couldn't find any good that came out of it. And I told them that their main problem in the situation was that they felt guilty because they couldn't find any good in this bad situation. And then I said, there's not a silver lining and you shouldn't feel guilty for not seeing one. You lost your son. It's sad. Be sad about it. And stop feeling guilty for not being able to see something good in it. It's sad and it's awful. See it as sad, see it as awful, and be sad about it. But isn't it working together for good for them if they love God? Yes, absolutely. But that doesn't make the situation in and of itself good. You try telling somebody who lost a child in a car wreck that it's not sad and that they need to see it as a good thing since God is causing all things to work together for their good. It's not biblical. Bad is bad, suffering is suffering, groaning is groaning, loss is loss, death is death. But our comfort from this verse is that ultimately... If we love God, we know that our final destiny, our final destination is good. The path to get there may very well be rocky and rough and hard and sad. And actually we saw two weeks ago that the Christian is promised suffering. Promised it. But Jesus said himself in John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take art, heart, I have overcome the world. What Jesus didn't say is, in this world you'll have tribulation. Try to find the good in it. Try to extract some good principle for your life out of it. No. He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And this is before he marched to the cross. You see the connection here? You will have trouble. You will have tribulation, and that is bad. But take heart and be of good courage. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Because Jesus has overcome the world. Well, what's that got to do with my suffering? What's that got to do with me losing my son in a car wreck? What's that got to do with my bad things? What's that got to do with me hurting right now? Well, it has everything to do with it. You will have tribulation in this world, but since Jesus has overcome the world, He can promise us something outside of this world, 
after this world has run its course that is worth believing in, trusting in, and in the thought pattern of the last two weeks, He can promise us something outside of this world to hope in and to hope for. Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters that Jesus dictates to John for seven churches of that day and time. Near the end, well, actually, I guess it's right near the beginning of chapter 2, he comes across the church in Smyrna, S-M-Y-R-N-A. They are the suffering church. I want you to hear what Jesus says to the suffering church of Revelation chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Listen. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Mm. Now, going back, do you see what this church was facing? Tribulation, poverty, slander, suffering, prison, testing, tribulation again. And in the midst of this, he doesn't say, but I'll make sure it feels good in the midst of it. He doesn't say, but look for the silver lining in the midst of it. No, he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. You see what's going on there in relation to Romans 8.28? All that suffering and persecution and ultimately their death gives them the crown of life after that death. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, believer. Our good in eternity is much better than our suffering here in this life. That's exactly what Paul was saying earlier in the chapter when he said in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Again, that's why context is so important. He didn't say he considered the possibility that we shouldn't suffer, or that the suffering wouldn't be hard. He just said it's not worth comparing with what glory we will see and have after it's all over here. All things synergistically working together for our ultimate good. Now let me ask you a question. Which would you rather have? 80 years of good and easy with an eternity of suffering? Or 80 years of suffering with an eternity of glory and ultimate good? or a year's supply of rice aroni and turtle wax behind door three. You want it easy and good now so that you can suffer in hell for eternity later? Just shooting you straight? Or will you take some sufferings and some batterings right now so that you can have greater, exponentially greater glory later and worship God forever in heaven? Because if we're going to know glory, what did we see two weeks ago? What precedes glory? Suffering. No suffering, no glory. You want glory, you have to suffer. 
Now, do you want to suffer now and glory later, or do you want your glory now and suffer later for eternity? Get your head screwed on right, Christian. This life is preparation for the next one. This is not all there is. It's good. It's beautiful. It's good to be a Christian. It's fun to be a Christian. It's good to be in the house of God and to worship and to sing and to eat food. It's good. But man, in the midst of this fallen, crooked, perverse generation, we groan. And it's hard. God, will you please deliver me from all this suffering? God's answer is no, I will not. I have something better for you up ahead if you can endure. And you can endure with the knowledge that everything is being worked together for your good. Everything. And it seems like it would be easy to choose the eternity of glory and the 80 years of suffering, but in the midst of the 80 years of suffering, sometimes it's easy to lose focus, isn't it? And what, all we know is the pain right now. All we know is the suffering right now. But what if that's true? What if we are being prepared for an eternity of glory through the suffering of this life? What if we are really being prepared and God is really working it all together for our good? Our good and bad here. Our easy and our hard here. Our questions and our answers. All for our good. Our ultimate good. Would that make a difference in how we see it all? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And now that last phrase in the verse. For those who are called according to His purpose. We've seen that this verse is talking about and to those who love God. This last phrase, for those who are called according to His purpose, gives an additional description of who it's about and who it's for. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now, we won't spend a lot of time here today because the next two verses expand on this and so do chapters 9, 10, and 11. What does it mean to be called? Who are the called of God? But those who love God are called. And they are called according to God's purpose. So who called them? God called them. God works for His purpose, and if anyone is called according to His purpose, God is the one who called them. The word carries the definition here of being divinely selected and appointed. Let that sink in for a second. If God called me, if I love God, God called me, and if God called me, that means that I am divinely selected and appointed. I better watch what I say. God effectually called these people, which means that He gave the call and He made it possible to answer that call. I can call you to God generally, but I can't make you, I can't even help you answer that call. But when God calls, the calling itself is the power needed to answer it. And when he calls, he calls according to his purpose. He has a plan, an agenda, a purpose that he wants fulfilled when he calls people. And that plan, that agenda, that purpose will be fulfilled in and through them. We saw that last week. 
And when he calls, he calls out of love. And so those who are called are the ones who love God at the beginning of the verse. His calling empowers our obedience to the call. His love empowers our love. 1 John 4.19, this is what I about spilled earlier. We love because He first loved us. Our love is because of His love. Our answer to the call is because of His call itself. It is effectual. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And His purpose is that His call will lead to our loving Him, and our loving Him will lead to all things working together for good. And we know this, and it should change our lives. How so? Let's look at application. First point of application. Know that all things happen to believers. All things. Good things, bad things, in-between things. They all happen to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. Listen, the life of a Christian is no different than anyone else's in that respect. And bad things are still bad things. And they happen to Christians. They're not bad things with silver linings all the time. Sometimes there may be a silver lining in it that we can see, but there doesn't have to be. For the believer, bad things happen and bad things are still bad. This is a right understanding of bad things particularly and all things in general. One commentator said that 50% of our despondency as Christians occurs simply out of surprise that bad things happen to us. Well, I thought God loved me. I thought, I thought that, that good things were supposed to happen. He must be mad at me. I must have done something wrong. I must have cussed in my sleep last night. You laugh, but that's how we live. How many times will I stand before these eyeballs looking at me and say this, Christian, God is not mad at you. He's not punishing you because you did something bad or because you weren't holy or pious enough. Because you didn't go to church today. Oh, well, my tire's flat. God, okay, I'll go to church next week. When we live this life of bargaining with God and this performance mentality of trying to earn the grace that He gives us freely, we miss God off the map. And we're not properly loving Him. You're like, well, I feel guilty enough. Don't tell me I'm not loving Him right. You can't love Him right if you don't receive His love for you correctly. And His love for you is not based on your performance. And these bad things that happen in your life are not God doling out punishment for you doing the wrong or bad thing. Bad things happen to Christians. Don't get discouraged about that. Bad things happen. And if we would just get out of this despondency mindset, man, something bad happened, doggone it. Are you surprised when bad things happen? You should not be. And this passage doesn't dodge that. It says all things, and all things means bad things included. And I know you're probably saying, well, thanks for that application point, Jason. That's what I came here to hear today. Bad things are going to happen. God bless you. Now go out and let bad things happen. 
fantastic, praise God, hallelujah, bad things are going to happen. That's like the anti-prosperity gospel. And I do believe that if you pray hard enough, bad things will happen. Get ready because bad things are coming your way. So many bad things you can't hold them all. Press down, shaking together, running over. Hallelujah. But stick with me. We ain't done yet. It's the first application point. All things happen to believers. Second application point. Know that for the believer, all things, even the bad things, are synergistically working together for our good. This is a right perspective of bad things specifically and all things in general. Simply knowing that bad things happen to Christians isn't enough in and of itself to help us. But if we know that God himself is causing these things, good or bad, to work together for our good, we can look at them like we should and groan or celebrate with ultimate hope. And what is that hope? It's that God is working all things together for our good and that good is ultimately, be, ultimately becoming conformed to the image of our suffering Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus suffered and since He did and then He overcame the world, He reigns in heaven where He will rule and reign over all things for eternity. And if you'll remember what we saw a couple of weeks ago, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. So that what is His is ours. And if He suffered, so will we. Tim Keller says this, Jesus did not suffer so that you won't suffer, but so that when you suffer, you will become like Him. And that is God's ultimate purpose. That we will be conformed to the image of His Son. That's next week in verse 29. Let me read that real quick. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So that's next week, a little sneak peek. It surely applies here. So our hope is that as God works all things together for our good, our good is that in eternity we will be like Jesus and will reign and rule with him. You might need to hear that again. Our hope is that as God works all things together for our good, our good is that in eternity we will be like Jesus and we will reign and rule with Him. This is what God is using all things to work together toward and what God purposes, God accomplishes. So good things happen, bad things happen, and all of them are being used by God for our good, which is our ultimate glory with Jesus in eternity. So application point one, all things happen to Christians. All things happen to believers. Application point two, know that for the believer, all things, even the bad things, are synergistically working together for our good. Now third application point, listen, please listen. If we know and believe that all things are being worked together for our good, then how should we view all these things when we are in the midst of them? This is the hope we've been referring to over these past two weeks that helps us as we suffer. 
We rejoice with hope. We suffer with hope. We groan with hope. Hope that will not disappoint us because it is hope in the person of God Himself and His purposes. We view all things as coming from the hand of God, being used for our good. All things. All things. I want to read two quotes from a couple of spiritual giants from the past. Help sum this up and then we'll wrap it up. First is from John Newton. John Newton was a slave ship captain that was miraculously saved and would go on to be a pastor and a hymn writer, writing a little song called Amazing Grace. You may have heard it before. He wrote others too. But he said this, listen, listen, listen. Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that He withholds. Say it again. Everything is necessary that God sends. S-E-N-D-S, sends. Nothing can be necessary that He withholds. So if it has come in your life, it's necessary. If it has not come in your life, you don't need it. That $387 million lottery, you don't need it, guys. Because you don't have it yet. Do you? Anybody got it? Anybody got that? Then you don't need it. That thing that came into your life that you thought you didn't need, it's necessary. That suffering that you would rather not have had, it's necessary. Everything is necessary that God sends. Nothing can be necessary that He withholds. That's big stuff. And then there's this from Jonathan Edwards, theologian and preacher, whose influence from the 18th century reaches all over the world today. You may have heard of a, a, a message called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That was Jonathan Edwards, and that's just a pinprick of the influence that he had in that day. Listen, now, this is a little wordy, because that's how Jonathan Edwards is. He was probably the smartest person to ever live in America, truthfully. Listen. A good man may look down upon all the whole army of worldly afflictions under his feet with a slight and disregard, that is, as evils, for he ought to have the greatest regard to them as they are for his good, and consider with himself and joy therein that, however great they are and however numerous, let them all join their forces together against him and put on their most rueful and dreadful habits, forms and appearances, and spend all their strength, vigor, and violence with endeavors to do him any real hurt or mischief, and it is all in vain. He may triumph over them all, knowing this. Light afflictions, which are but for a moment, shall only work out for him a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That is saying, hit me with your best shot, to put it in Pat Benatar terms. Give me everything you've got, and I will look at it as working out for my good. Put these quotes together, and we see that God sends all things into our lives, 
and withholds whatever he withholds for our good, and the worst things that happen to us can be looked upon with victory, victory assured, and an eternal weight of glory assured to us in the end. Mm. So how should we live in the midst of it all? We should live like we believe that Romans 8.28 is true. It's really true. To look sorrow and hurt and victory and sin and failing and falling and hope and joy and everything from beginning to end as that which has been sent from my Father who loves me and has called me according to His purposes which are ultimately my good and His glory. All things for my good. All things. That's how I should live. Today, tomorrow, and until I see him face to face. As I hurt, I hurt with hope, knowing that I am his, and as such, this hurt is for my ultimate good. Can I see the whole picture? No. So I groan and await the redemption of my body and trust that the Spirit himself is interceding for me to ensure that my final outcome is glory with and glory for the person of God whom I love for who he is. So when suffering comes, as it surely will, when tragedy strikes, as it surely will, when I hurt and cry out for answers that don't come, the clear clarion call of Romans 8.28 holds me firm and sure. This will ultimately be worked together with everything else for my good. Maybe not today. Maybe not next week. Maybe not even in this life. But there is a life to come where this will lead me to more glory than I can comprehend at this point of my life. And because I love you, God, because I am called according to your purpose, I know that this is working together for my good. And as such, I will live as bold as a lion, taking risks and trusting you with my very life. I trust you, I love you, and I believe you are my best good. What if it's true? It is too good to not be true. This is true. I'll finish with this quote from John Piper and a free book from Ligonier Ministries. If you live inside this massive promise, your life is more solid and stable than Mount Everest. Nothing can blow you over when you are inside the walls of Romans 8.28. Outside of Romans 8.28, all is confusion and anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Outside this promise of all-encompassing future grace, there are straw houses of drugs and alcohol and numbing TV and dozens of futile diversions. There are slat walls and tin roofs of fragile investment strategies and fleeting insurance coverage and trivial retirement plans. There are cardboard fortifications of deadbolt locks and alarm systems and anti-ballistic missiles. Outside are a thousand substitutes for Romans 8.28. But... Once you walk through the door of love into the massive, unshakable structure of Romans 8.28, everything changes. There come into your life stability and depth and freedom. You simply cannot 
be blown over anymore. The confidence that a sovereign God governs for your good all the pain and all the pleasure that you will ever experience is an incomparable refuge and security and hope and power in your life. What if it's true? What if it's true for me? What if it's true for you? And what if we lived like we really believed it was? Impacting the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ because he's working it all together for our good. God, you want to send me to Saudi Arabia where they're surely going to kill me? It's all going to work for my good. What if it's true? Now, for those of you outside of Christ, it's not true. And I would say all things are working together for your bad. So run into the refuge that is Jesus Christ. The Son of God who was sinless and who bore the punishment for your sin on a cross. God poured his wrath out upon Jesus to punish your sins. Jesus Christ was dead. He was buried. He was resurrected. Came back to life. Showed himself alive to over 500 people. Dead people don't come back to life normally. He came back to life and he said, I'm alive. I'm risen. God showed that he accepted Jesus' payment for our sins by bringing him back from the dead. Jesus ascended. He's sitting right now in heaven and he's saying, Come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you want to know what rest is? Rest is that right there. If you come and lay your sins and your burdens upon him, everything changes. Come and confess your sins. God, I need a Savior. I believe Jesus is that Savior. His payment for my sins was sufficient for you, and I believe it's sufficient for me. And I believe that now, starting now, God, you can cause all things to work together for my good because I have been called according to your purpose and I love you. The offer stands. If you need to talk to somebody about that, please find us after the service. Talk, find somebody and say, I want to know this Jesus. We can introduce you to him. All things. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. God, I beg you that you would help me live in the truth of this verse. When the diagnosis comes and it doesn't seem good to me and it's not good for me, help me to know that you're causing it to work together for my good. When the raise comes and I'm celebrating, help me to know that you're causing it to work together for my ultimate good, that it is not my ultimate good. God, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to enjoy you for who you are, that we would know that you are our ultimate good, and that we would rejoice in you. And rest in the truth that you are literally causing all things to work together for our good. Because we love you, because we have been called according to your purposes. Help us, God, to take it all in and to live it out in the power of your Spirit. Let me ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Would you stand and receive a benediction as we conclude? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you, guys.